Hello, and welcome to the Park Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor David Blakely. Our goal is to preach the Word of God in a real and authentic way, so you are filled with the Spirit to guide you through life each and every week. To learn more about Park Baptist Church, visit parkbaptist.com. And now, Pastor David Blakely. I want to begin by just asking, how how many of you have ever felt like you are just overwhelmed by life, that you have so much going on, there's no way you're ever going to get it all done. You know, if if you had um, weeks of free time to get work done, you still wouldn't possibly get it caught caught up. You know, have you ever felt that way? You know, if, if you haven't, you're a liar. That, that's all there is to it. Um, you know, because life, life is just overwhelming. And, and as a result, you know, there are, if you go around the world, there are nothing but unfinished projects, uh, unfinished, unrealized dreams, uh, unfinished buildings, unfinished work. And, and that's just part of, us living in a broken world. But there is one person in history who finished what they came to earth to do, and that is Jesus Christ. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, I must finish the work that God gave me to do. And fortunately for me and you, we we are able to benefit from what Jesus completed. You know, on a cross 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus finished what he came to accomplish. Uh, As he was ending the, the end of his suffering, as he's hanging on the cross in John chapter 19, Jesus, it says of, of Jesus, knowing that all of it was now completed so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And after Jesus was given a drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, this phrase, it is finished, in in theological terms is known as the word of victory. And the way it's written in, in the Greek text, we know that Jesus shouted it from the cross. He didn't whisper it. He shouted it. And and these words, it is finished. These are the three most important words in all of human history. Nothing compares with the words, it is finished. Now, what's ironic is that when Jesus shouts this from the cross, nobody around him understood what he was saying. You know, they, they didn't have the slightest idea what he was talking about. So what I want us to do today so that we can fully appreciate what Jesus is saying is I want to spend our time this morning talking about what did Jesus mean and, and how, what are the implications of him when he said it is finished? Because this here is the central theme of Christianity. If we don't understand what Jesus is saying here, then we don't understand Christianity. 
Now, the Holy Spirit led John as he wrote the, the gospel of John. And for the phrase, it is finished, when, when the, the book was translated into Greek or, or, or given to us in Greek, the word, it is finished, or the, the phrase, it is finished, is actually used just one Greek word, the word tetelasti. And I know you're sitting here saying, so what, who cares, I, that doesn't matter. But it actually does matter quite a bit. And so I want us to, to spend some time. It was a very common Greek word. It had many different uses. Um, we use the word love in many different ways. You know, we could say, I love puppies, you know, um, or I love pizza, or I love my wife, you know, and, and you know, we, we use all of these different scenarios, but we're using the same word. And what we need to understand with this word here, this tetelasti, is that it had multiple uses, multiple meanings. And, and so let's start off by, first of all, when a, a worker went and did a job for the boss or a slave did a job for the master, when they finished, when they completed the job, they would come to the, the boss and they would say, boss, yo, the job is finished. Tete lasti. It is done. It is completed. And of course, Jesus was saying that from the cross. You know, the, the job that God had given Jesus to accomplish had been completed. I have finished the task you gave me. But it was also used in the legal realm. Uh, judges would use this word in, in the courtroom. When a sentence had been carried out, if someone had been convicted of a crime and they had to either spend jail time or pay a fine or be executed, when the, when it, when the um, crime had been paid, then the judge would sign off on the document saying that the, the, uh, that it had been carried out, that, that the, I, I'm missing a word here, but when, that the, um, that the sentence had been carried out, then the judge would sign off tete lasti or complete the, the crime has been paid for. So this was also something that Jesus would meant that, that justice has been served. It was also an accounting term. Um, it would mean it meant paid in full. When you went and got a brand new chariot, all right, with two horsepower, and it, it was in primo condition, and so you had to make monthly payments until your chariot was paid off. But when it was finally paid off and you got the bill of sale, across the bill of sale, it would say tete lasti, paid in full. And certainly Jesus meant that when he shouted it from the cross. The debt is paid. It was also a term that an artist or a craftsman would use. When, when an artist or a craftsman would finish a project, 
In fact, I'm sure many of you have actually said this um, when you finish painting a, a picture or you finish a, a carpentry project or something like that. You step back and say, done, it's finished, I, it's complete. And so, again, that's, that's what um, is meant by tetelasti. And then finally, the fifth way that this word was used, it was used in the religious world when a priest would go into the temple and offer a sacrifice. They would, they would kill the animal and they would offer the animal to God as a sacrifice. And then they would come out and they would announce to the assembled audience Tete lasti. In other words, the sacrifice has been made. It is completed. And so certainly Jesus meant that as well. You know, this word sums up Christianity in a nutshell. This is what makes Christianity, true biblical Christianity, different from any other religion on the face of the earth. Because in all religions, it somehow boils down to something we have to do in order to be accepted by God. It doesn't matter what the religion is. If, if someone is practicing a, one of these religions, what they have to do is they have to do something in order for God to say, that's what I'm wanting. There it is. But not in Christianity. In Christianity... We don't do anything to gain God's salvation. You cannot do anything. In fact, if in your mind you're thinking, well, I have to do this or I have to do that in order for God to accept me, you're not practicing biblical Christianity. You're practicing a religion. But let me tell you, religion is death. Religion will never, ever, ever get you to God. Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is a matter of accepting what God did for us, and that's it. So let's, let's look at what, what Jesus meant when he was saying this. What, what, what was actually taking place? Well, the first thing Jesus accomplished was he fulfilled what God had promised. Believe it or not, in the Old Testament, there are 380 prophecies pointing to the coming of a Messiah, coming, uh, pointing to the, the, the coming of, of Jesus Christ. And these 380 prophecies Every single one of them was fulfilled by Jesus. Just one of the prophecies um, at Christmas time. Does this sound familiar? Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the King. Does that ring a bell? You know, Christmas time. Well, what is that saying? That there is going to come a Savior. That there is going to be someone who comes who rescues the people. And this is just one of 380 prophecies that were given in the Old Testament saying that there is going to come a Savior. Now, 
in Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 44, Jesus said, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So what Jesus is saying is everything written in the Old Testament about me, I have come to, to fulfill. I have come to, to make sure that it happens. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul wrote all of God's promises. Hear that? All of God's promises have been fulfilled in him. So that's the first thing is that Jesus fulfilled what God had promised. The second thing is that he satisfies God's justice, that, that God has a requirement of justice. Now, we're fond of talking about the fact that God loves us, and, and, and that is true. But what we need to understand is that because God loves he also has expectation. And we need to understand that God is also a God of justice. God is always fair. And we, we live in a world where fairness is, is not necessarily always consistent. You know, we, we think that, you know, that life should be fair, and, and that is true. The reason we believe that, the reason we understand that, is because we are made in the image of God. And because we are made in the image of God, we understand that there is right and wrong. There, there is justice. And, and so as a result, we expect that. Now, because God is a God of justice, Everything runs according to, to guidelines in his universe. Everything is, is in balance because God uses his righteousness to, to balance everything out. There are laws throughout the universe. There are laws of physics. See, I can't even say the word. There, there are laws of physics and chemistry and laws of mathematics, and, and they work every time because God ordered it that way. But there are also laws on a personal level. There are, there are physical laws. There are spiritual laws. There are moral laws. And, and again, God has given us those things so that we understand the parameters. We understand the balance. You know, God gave these to us so that, that we would know right from wrong and, and all of that. In Romans 3.23, though, it says, we all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. You see, you and I cannot measure up to God's standards, God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of justice. God is the God of truth. And so these are the expectations, but none of us, none of us can meet those expectations. Uh, we, we just flat out can't obey God's moral and spiritual laws. You know, um, 
you know, the Bible tells us that we are to love and worship God. We are to love others. We're to, to not murder. We're to not lie. We're not to, to cheat or steal or, or lust. All, you know, all of that stuff. And we fail consistently on all of those things because God's laws are perfect. Well, we're not. I, I hope that doesn't break it to anybody for the first time. No matter how we try, we cannot live without sin in our lives. And by the way, sin means any disobedience to God. Sin means not being perfect. Okay? So there's not a moment of any day that you and I are not in the presence of sin in our own lives. Now, in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 3, it says, The law of Moses could not save us because of our sinful nature. But God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent His own Son in a human body like ours, except that ours are sinful. God destroyed sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the requirement of the law would be fully accomplished for us who, are, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. See, this is so important for us to understand. God's laws, the, the Ten Commandments, just to keep it simple, are there in place so that we understand this is what God expects. This is God's perfect expectation. None of us measure up. None of us can measure up, measure up. None of us ever will measure up. Only Jesus measures up. And so we are to come up against this law and go, crud, I can't do that. I, I, I don't have any way of getting over. And so what we in our sinfulness do is we try to figure out a way to get up and over God's law. We try to be perfect. Well, we, we can't. We fail every time. What's supposed to happen is that we turn to God and say, God, I can't do it. I, I, I don't have any way of being able to live up to your standard. Please help me. And God says, I have supplied the help that you need. I sent my son. He died for your sins. You can't do it, but he did it for you. The only person who ever followed God's law perfectly was Jesus Christ. And that's why he is the only one that can be a sacrifice for our sins. There is no other option. John 3, 16 and 17, God loved the world of the, God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. He sent him into the world to save them. This is so important for us to understand. We cannot have a relationship with God. We cannot be in the presence of God 
based on our own ability, based on our own merit. The only way we can come into God's presence, which has to be perfect, is through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. There are no shortcuts. There are not many roads that lead to God, contrary to what Oprah says. There is one way and one way only to Jesus Christ. You know, if I steal, if I murder, there's a consequence for that. We need to understand if there was no consequence, then it wouldn't be fair. God is fair. His justice has to be, has to be filled. And the only one that could fill it was Jesus on a cross because God is both fair and just. You know, we have all broken God's laws, but the good news is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, what God's justice requires. Hebrews 5, 9 says, after Jesus finished his work on the cross, he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. Jesus alone is accomplished what you and I can't, but how do you know if you're really saved? How do you know if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, here's the answer right there at the end of, of Hebrews 5, 9. For everyone who obeys him. Let that sink in a little bit. It doesn't say for everyone who joins a church. It doesn't say for everyone who is christened or baptized it doesn't say for everyone who has perfect attendance at church. It doesn't say for everyone who never cusses, lies, or, or any of that stuff. It says for people who obey God. Now, we've already established we're sinners. I am a sinner. I am a filthy, dirty, rotten, despicable sinner. At least I didn't get an amen. Um, <laughs> But my heart's desire is to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to walk in fellowship with Jesus. But I fail at it horribly because I'm a sinner. I am a sinner through and through. The only thing that is right in my life is Jesus Christ in me. So every day I deal with the frustration of trying to honor God and trying to obey God, but I'm in a broken, sinful body that doesn't hold up. Okay, and that if that is your experience, that's what it means to be a Christian. Are you seeking to obey God? Because let me tell you, and, and please hear this, very carefully. If you believe yourself to be a Christian, if you were to die today and go and, and stand before God, whether you go to heaven or hell, this is where it is dependent. If you have no interest in God, if you have no interest in being in right relationship with God, if you have no, if you don't really even think about stuff like that, it really isn't important to you. Please hear me carefully. 
you are not a Christian. You are going to hell when you die. Please hear that. And I'm not saying that in a hateful way. I'm saying that so that you will have the slap in the face of saying, oh my gosh, I need to get things figured out. I need to, I need to get this right. Please hear that. Jesus died on a cross so that anyone can turn to him and say, Jesus, I understand you and you alone are my only salvation. I am placing my trust in you. And if, you know, that, that's what, what, that's where it all happens. Romans 5.18 says, just as one person, Adam, did it wrong and got us all in trouble, this trouble of, of sin and death, Another person did it right. Jesus got us out of it. But more than just getting out of trouble, he got us into life. Jesus fulfills God's promises on the cross. Jesus satisfies God's justice on the cross. And he paid the debt that you and I owe. Colossians 2.14, we owe the debt because we've broken God's laws and that debt listed all the rules that we failed to follow. But here's the good part. But God forgave our debt and he canceled our debt by nailing it to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, every sin that has ever been committed on the face of the earth that will ever be committed on the face of the earth was represented on Jesus on the cross. Every sin. Now, what makes a saved person different from an unsaved person is a saved person says, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I am placing my trust in Jesus because of what he did on the cross. An unsaved person says, eh, don't care, not really interested, not even looking to it, that, that really doesn't apply. Or an unsaved person says, well, I have done these wonderful things with my life, and so as a result, I am sure God will give me one of the best seats in heaven, or something that boils down to something I did to make God accept me. You cannot do anything to make God accept you. All you can do is accept what Jesus did to make God accept you. Paid in full. Tete lesta. See, I can't even say it now. Is, that, is, that is it. It is finished. Colossians 1.14, God's son paid the price. So we need to understand that. We don't need to offer any sacrifices of our own. We don't need to do anything that God says, okay, you've done enough over here. I, know, I see how hard you're working at it. God, God is not looking for that. He's looking at the cross of Jesus. The next thing that Jesus accomplished on the cross is he defeated death and our, our fear of death. Romans 5.17, the sins of one man, Adam, caused death to rule over us. But all who receive God's wonderful, gracious gift of righteousness, that's the gift of grace, will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus broke the power of sin and death when he rose from the dead. He took sin on himself. He died on the cross. When he died, the sins died with him. And when he rose from the dead, the sin stayed in the grave. We are free from sin through Jesus Christ. You know, and that's what the picture of baptism illustrates when we are buried to our old way of life and we're raised to newness of life. That's the old person going to the grave, the new person coming out of the grave. Romans 6, 4 says, by our baptism, then we are buried with him and share in his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the father. Now there's one more reason that Jesus said it is finished. He destroyed Satan's power, his control over us on the cross. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. Now, let me be honest with you again. If you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, if his Holy Spirit is not dwelling in you, and again, the way you know the Holy Spirit is present in your life is if you desire fellowship with God, that you desire obedience to God, that you desire oneness with God. If, if you don't have that, in your life, you are at the mercy of Satan. You and Satan are both doomed to the same ending, a place called hell. And again, I'm not trying to be hateful. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm trying to do just the opposite. You know, it, I, you need to understand the consequence of being a person filled with sin, you know, but if you have God's power, if you have God's spirit in your life, then the Bible says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In Colossians 1.13, Jesus destroyed the first, the, he destroyed temptation and, and he freed us from the power of darkness and he brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. You know, Jesus set us free from being in bondage to sin and in bondage to Satan. God set us free. So let's real quickly just summarize this. When Jesus dies on the cross and he says, it is finished. He fulfilled God's promises. He satisfied God's judgment so that you don't have to pay for your sin. I, he paid the debt that we owed God. He defeated death. He defeated the fear of death and he destroyed Satan's power to control our lives. Now these benefits are available to anyone who will cry out and ask God for them, but they don't happen automatically. There is not anything known as universal salvation where everybody goes to heaven. That is not true. You know, the fact that John 3, 16, Jesus loved us so much that he saved us. Well, what did he save us from? He saved us from hell. And so we need to understand that Jesus makes this available to anyone, but you have to say, I want it. I, I turn my life over to you, God. 
And I want to be very clear about that. When we turn our life over to God, it's not just, hey, God, I, I want to go to heaven. You know, we're not buying a life insurance or a fire insurance policy. We are turning our life over to God. We don't have to do a thing to gain God's salvation. But that's when the hard part starts. Because again, for the rest of our natural lives, we live submitting ourselves to the authority of God in our lives. We no longer live for ourselves. We no longer get to decide what we want. Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. What that means is I surrender control of my life over to God. If you're saying, well, that doesn't sound any fun. It's not. It's not supposed to be fun. But what do you want? Do you want to live a life? You know, Jesus also said, my burden is easy. The, re the reason he said that is because following him, a God who loves us and cares about us, is far better than the path that leads to hell. We need to understand that. There are consequences. We live in a world that has rules and regulations and laws. And if we turn our life away from God, we might live a great life in this life, but we will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. So what we need to understand in Ephesians 2, 8 says, being saved is all God's idea and it's all his work. You don't work for it. It's all God's work. Jesus did it on the cross. Saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. There's nothing else for you to do. All you do is say, God, I want you in my life and I give up control to you. I turn it over to you. And that's where the path, the relationship begins. It is the most wonderful gift we can have. And it is the most wonderful relationship that we can have. Again, it's not necessarily easy, but the joy of fellowship and the joy of communion with God is far better than being separated from God. Salvation comes when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And as a result, you accept his death as a substitute for you. Because of what Jesus did for you on your behalf, you turn your life over to him. You ask Jesus to take over and take control. Again, Hebrews 5, 9, after Jesus finished his work on the cross, he became the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. That's how you know you're saved. It's not because you walk an aisle. It's not because you pray a prayer. It's because you turn your life over to him and say, I give it to you. It is finished. There's nothing else for you to do except to accept. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
And right now, Father, I, I believe there are probably many people who are a part of this service, whether they're in this room or they're watching online, who maybe have questions in their mind about whether or not they're saved or, or maybe for the first time they're realizing, I need God in my life. I need Jesus in my heart. Father, I pray especially for them right now, and I ask that you would move in power in their lives. Give them the ability to, um, by faith, accept what you have given them. Father, please may your will be done in our midst today so that you will be glorified. Thank you. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. Amen. 